Well, let's stand and read our uh, John chapter 12, as our custom, uh, verses 1 to 11. So Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief, and he used to... And he had the money box, and he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, Let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always will have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see also Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Let's pray as a church. Father, we are, we are grateful at this time of year because you sent your son into the world. And that's what we, we remember as a church because without you, God, all of us here would not have a chance of being in eternal glory with you in the future. Uh, we, we, we love you for the fact that you've sacrificed your son for us to free us from our sins and to give us new life. Thank you, Lord, to love us that much. And we meet... We, May we reflect that love to others also through this Christmas season. And we look forward to spending time in your word, and we just pray that you prepare our hearts to hear what your Spirit has to say to us. Whether we need encouraging, convicting, or strengthening, whatever it may be, you know where we're at, and we just ask you that you speak to us now. In Christ's name, amen. So before we begin today and uncover the truth from this passage, uh, just do a quick review of last week uh, for those of us who may have forgotten or maybe are new and wouldn't know what we spoke about. But in last week's uh, passage, we did 1 to 11 as well. But we looked at uh, five different reactions that were directed towards Jesus after he'd raised Lazarus from the grave. Um, he had raised Lazarus, had to escape from Bethany, to go to a place called Ephraim uh, because he was going to be there was a there's a bounty in his head to basically to arrest him and they wanted to get him and obviously towards uh, they wanted to kill him and so there was when they came back to Bethany there was a supper thrown for him and we see that there were five different reactions to him and we we ended up looking at three last week in particular uh, three responses that were favorable to Jesus from his raising of Lazarus and who he was. Um, the, first, the first three were Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And uh, Mary chose to show her affection for Jesus um, and her devotion to him through a personal sacrifice of, of a financial costly perfume. And even in her reputation, we talked about how she showed, showed Jesus' love by putting her reputation on the line too through that act of worship. Uh, um, Martha chose to serve Jesus and throw him a big uh, banquet and uh, chose that role as her way of showing love and devotion. And Lazarus chose to sit at, his, um, at a table with him, listening to him all night. And that was his way of expressing love. So we went into those in, a bit de in detail last week, but we didn't finish the last two reactions to, to Jesus, and that were two, two negative reactions. 
The first one we're going to look at is Judas today, who chose to respond to Jesus in hypocritical self-interest. And the other person, other group was the religious leaders who respond to him with hostility to the point that they wanted to, to murder him. So we're going to look at those today as our final two uh, reactions within this passage. So let's begin with Judas, who chose to show his disdain for Jesus through hypocritical self-interest. Uh, this response that he gave, of course, came after he just anointed, Mary had just anointed Jesus' feet with this costly perfume, and then Judas responds in this way to her in verses 4. He says, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief, and as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Immediately in verse 4 and 5, we see what the nature of hypocrisy is. Okay? You'll notice here that there's a contradiction between his hard intentions towards Christ, but what actually comes out of his mouth. So there's this private hard intention that's known only to himself, but then there's this outward public display of actions that, that everyone else gets to hear. Notice in verse 4, it says that he was, while he was saying this, he was intending to portray Jesus. So intentions, his hard intentions toward Jesus in his private life were hostile. He wanted to turn him in and to, and to go behind his back and betray him. But what he was publicly professing was his genuine concern for the poor. And we see that in, um, in verse 5. So in essence, Judas, Judas is leading a dual life. It's a double standard. He's got this private life that's rebellious towards God, but in public and in the Christian circles, he's all about keeping up appearances. He's all, he knows how to say noble things and righteous things and godly things when the timing is necessary. And the amazing thing about Judas here is that he managed to dupe everyone around him. The disciples at the time had no idea of Judas' intentions uh, towards Jesus. The only reason why we know why he was intending to betray him and that he used to steal was because John, who's the author of this passage, is writing in hindsight. So decades have passed, he's writing this letter down, um, and he's writing to help us understand where Judas was at at the time. But at the time, the disciples had no idea he was going to do this. We're going to see this pretty soon in the Last Supper, but at the Last Supper, Jesus announces, um, one of you is going to betray me, and the disciples don't all point their fingers at Judas unanimously and go, we know who it is. They all say, not I, Lord, not I, Lord. Who is it? Who is it? They had no idea. So Judas, for his entire three-year ministry, was able to function under the radar, and the disciples had no idea where his heart intentions are were to, towards the Lord. And that's, I think it's important to understand that, because hypocrisy often can be that when it's, when it's Privately, we are able to like hide our intentions, but publicly portray this godly, noble character on the outside. But if you and I were there, I would suggest that we wouldn't have been any smarter than the disciples. We would have been duped as well. If these 12 guys couldn't figure it out, I don't think you and I would have the insight to know either. And partly too, because when he made his point here, as an outsider looking in, you'd have thought he had something of validity to offer. Right? Jesus, or Mary spends one year with a salary, because that's what 300 denarii is. In our equivalent context, if he made 60 grand a year, she just spends $60,000 worth of perfume on, his, on her feet. So if you were to listen to this, you think, wow, one, uh, one bottle of $60,000 on the feet 
versus the ability to feed the poor. Now, I just did the math for interest sake. In our context, I just took a salary of $50,000, and I divided an average loaf of bread as $5. So if you take a $50,000 salary and you do $5 loaf of bread, you come up with 10,000 loaves. If you, those of you, or those of you in here, if you do, I don't know who does and who doesn't, but let's say you make 100 grand a year, that's, that's 20,000 loaves. So imagine that listening to Judas that day, you'd be like, this makes a lot of sense. Like, Okotoks has 30,000 people, probably around 8,000 adults. The rest are probably kids. But let's just say 10,000 adults. One $50,000 salary could provide each family with a loaf of bread. So you think if everybody here was impoverished, Judas's comments make a lot of sense. And you think, he's, he's, this is a good idea. This is a godly, noble thing to offer, for him to offer. And so we would have been impressed with Judas's concern for the poor. But John tells us it was all a facade, because in verse 6, he reveals his heart motivation. He says this, that he wasn't... Um, now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief... And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. So again, this is not a genuine concern for the poor. Judas only had a concern for himself, again, revealing his hypocrisy. Uh, I read a commentary every week uh, when I do, well, two or three commentaries when I do my sermons, and I like the way Leon Morris said it. He said, uh, Judas had a sharp sense of financial values, but no appreciation for human values. It's a very good way of summarizing his attitude at the time. But again, the disciples had no idea that was what he was thinking. So to explain how he was able to do this and, and kind of what was going on in his heart, and I want to help you understand his role in, as a, one of the 12 disciples. Uh, basically, Judas of the 12 was exactly what Jeff Rempel is to the Genesis house. All right? Not a thief, but the treasurer. All right? <laughs> <laughs> Not hypocritical, no. He's, yeah, he's the treasurer. Yeah, that's why he had a money box. Now, remember, Jesus and the disciples didn't have a place to constantly stay. Like They, they, they had homes and different things, but they were traveling a lot. So they, they relied on people to support them uh, with food, shelter, and finances. Uh, that's like Mary and Martha and Lazarus. I mean, Bethany was a home where they would come to frequently lodge at, eat at, and that wasn't just a one-time thing. They, they were constantly going there. Um, I think even possibly through the Passover, the last week of his life, it seems like they were in Jerusalem and go back to their house. Jerusalem back to their house. I think they actually lodged in Bethany every night during that week. Um, so they, their house is open to supporting them. We have the same thing in our missionaries today. People need like food, lodging, and, and uh, financial support to con continue out their evangelistic ministries. But a great, uh, great passage, actually, to show the financial support of Jesus. And you may have missed this in your previous uh, readings at some point, but maybe you haven't. But look at Luke 8, 1 to 3. Uh, soon afterwards, it says, Jesus began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene and from whom seven demons had come out, and Johanna, Joanna, the, the wife of Chusa, Herod Stewart, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support of their private means. Okay, so they're, they're out of their own pockets, these women are supporting the ministry of Jesus and the disciples. So Judas then, when people like 
Joanna and, and Mary Magdalene and Susanna were giving money to the disciples, Judas would take the money, he'd put it in the money box, and they would travel around from village to village, and he would hold it. So when he needed food, he, Judas would give them money. Um, you think of a uh, woman at the Samaritan well. Jesus is at the well, and what does Jesus do? He sends the disciples into to the village of Sychar to get food. Judas has the money, he goes in with some guys and they buy food. So he's, he's handling all the finances. That, I just want you to understand that so that you understand how he could pilfer the box and nobody would know. Just like uh, in, in, you know, in churches too, that's why you want the person as a treasurer to have a credible reputation, right? Because they could pilfer and none of us would ever know. I mean, we have a little bit more checks and balances with the government and, and you know, online e-transfers and stuff, but back then it's just cash in hand and you're just walking around. Now you can see why as well, since he's holding all the funds, not only why he could easily access the funds without being noticed, but also why now he's indignant towards Mary. You see, Mary's decision to waste <laughs> such costly perfume on Jesus just negated his ability to get wealthier. He just negated his ability to get wealthier. He took fifty to sixty or $100,000 out of his potential uh, financial portfolio to dip into. I mean, this was cash in the bag for him, a fantastic opportunity to increase his financial portfolio, and Mary had now squandered that for him uh, to a greater degree. So the question is, why did Judas turn? <coughs> why did he turn on Jesus? In the beginning, we know everything was fine. He was sold out for Christ in the beginning. Uh, when Jesus went up to the mountain to pray in um, Luke, he chose 12 disciples. Now it's important to notice he chose 12 disciples who became apostles, not a traitor. So he didn't choose them as a traitor, he chose them, chose them as an apostle. Peter legitimized that ministry in Acts chapter 1. He says it's time for us to choose a new apostle to replace Judas' ministry. Proof that he was a genuine apostle was evidenced by his ministry. Um, places like Luke 9 and Matthew 10, he preached the same gospel as other disciples. And he healed um, the same amount of, like, he, when he would pray in the name of, of the Lord for healings, for exorcisms and different diseases to leave, they, people, were healed. There was no indication in the first three years of ministry that, that he was not healing. He was not preaching the same truth. The disciples, like I said, on the Last Supper had no idea he was any different than the rest of them. So this guy in the beginning is sold out, at the beginning anyway, for Christ, and now we see him turning on him. So what happened? Well, the scripture has no answer, um, but I have a suggestion, and um, so you can take it or leave it, but I, I'll give you a suggestion based on everything I've you know, grown to know about the, the Word of God. Um, I would suggest he was dissatisfied with the way and the mission of Jesus Christ was turning out. He was dissatisfied with the mission of Jesus Christ and the way it was turning out. Here's why. As the Messiah, Judas would have expected him to be the king of Israel, and he would have expected him to deliver Israel from, and produce political reform. He, they were expecting this, uh, this king to come, conquer Rome, get rid of them, and restore Israel's national security and national independence. As one of the twelve chosen by this king, when he believed him to be Messiah, he, met, he thought, my goodness, here I am, one of the 12 in Israel. I got a chance to have authority and influence and power under Jesus' ministry. 
If he's going to be king, and I'm one of the twelve, I get to rule this nation with him. But things had not been going so well lately. Uh, instead of gaining popularity and moving towards kingship, Jesus is speaking in private conversations about how he's going to die soon. He's telling them in advance, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. Judas may not like to have heard that. Um, death threats are intimate. If you come back to Jerusalem, there's a, there's a warrant out for his arrest. And he's already witnessed three attempting stonings on his life. So, man, like the leadership of Israel is hot on Jesus' tail. Judas can no longer walk around the, the land anymore without his head looking over his shoulder. Because he's always wondering if there's going to be, if this is going to be the end of it for them. So Judas now seeing time is running out for Jesus, and now there's nothing for him to gain in terms of power influence in Israel, because he's going to lose out on, the, on this position. He's, the life he signed up for under Christ isn't turning out for him, so he thinks, you know what, I'll just get as rich as possible under this ministry while the time is good. And when the time is gone, at least, at least, at least I'd get something financial out of this when, the, when, the, when everything ends. Again, Scripture doesn't provide a clear answer, so you can take it or leave it. But regardless of what, if I'm right or wrong in this, something did happen in that three years to make him turn, because in the beginning he was, he was a pro-Jesus uh, person. We can't leave the lessons at Judas here. We have to look at the lessons for us from Judas. And if you're like me, because I like to only see the rose, the rose being red and everything being awesome, I want to identify with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. I don't want to identify with Judas. I want to see myself as Martha, the servant, the one who shows Jesus love by serving. I want to be like Lazarus, who shows him love by listening to him frequently. I want to be Mary, who's willing to make, make, reputation, make my reputation nothing compared to, um, you know, I, I'm not afraid to put my public reputation on the line for the sake of Christ, or I'll take financial hits for the sake of Jesus. I don't want to think of myself like Judas, who's a hypocrite, <laughs> and I'm self only follow Jesus for self-interest and personal gain. But I want to suggest that maybe all of us are a little bit closer to him than we might want to admit. At all... At all points in our lives, all of us in here have been guilty of hypocrisy at least once. At least I have, more than once. We've all, we've all portrayed a life that's godly on the outside, righteous, noble, right? We know how to say the right things, and we know how to say, God bless you. I'll pray for you. Man, you know, like, I, I'll just pray that God, like, you know, we know all those kind of, lang all kind of language. Yet in our private lives, we often, in, behind closed doors, often act in contradiction to what we know is right. Like Judas, we are all guilty of living a dual life at times. We've all become sort of fluent in Christianese, you know? You know the language. But then we turn around then to find ourselves in the midst of gossip. We find ourselves holding on to unforgiveness. Or we live a life of various sins behind closed doors. We were all guilty of it. And I know I have been, and I, I'm, I'm sure I will be in the future as well. I mean, I, it's really, that's what's really hard about in my role. Like, I'll teach you about parenting for seven weeks and how to do godly parenting and have all the right answers from Scripture and then go home and fail to do it, fail to do it myself. <laughs> or 
you, the very person that you could be praying for, for God to do a, a, a healing act in their life, like either an emotional one or a spiritual one, whatever, and then you could turn around and a month later find yourself gossiping about that person with someone else in the church. Or even the category of Judas. Judas is a thief, but let's not go there with us being thieves, but think of him being stingy. He's stingy. He just wants to increase his own financial portfolio. A lot of us might believe that we should be generous towards others, but then we find ourselves being stingy on a regular basis. Again, I'm not saying this to shame anyone, because uh, I'd be shaming myself in this, but um, I just want to make you aware of and think about that it's easier to be Judas than we might want to think. So I want to give you a reminder and a motivation of why not to be Judas. <laughs> why not to be Judas? Hebrews 4.13 is a fantastic passage. It says this, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. All right? A motivating factor to think about if we find ourselves about to be hypocritical or we find ourselves in a place where we've noticed we have been, we've been convicted, and just remember that God is going, is God can see absolutely everything you say and you do, and he knows your thoughts. It's all laid bare before him, and we're going to have to give him an account. Now, I do want to say this, and I want to clarify this. There are varying degrees of hypocrisy, and I would say some, uh, because we're all guilty of it at some points, we just, when we notice ourselves in it, I would confess those things, and I would plead with you to make yourself right before God. But there's some areas of hypocrisy which is just not good wisdom, but there's some areas that are salvation issues. I want to distinguish between the ones that are not good wisdom and what's a salvation issue. Um, certain categories of life within Scripture make it clear that if we practice, if we are practice hypocrisy in certain areas, or we, that's what we're known for, we are not going to glory. If you want to read those lists, you go to Galatians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 6 and Romans chapter 1. If we are practicing um, a life as a Christian, for practicing those areas of hypocrisy in Romans 1, Galatians 5, or 1 Corinthians 6, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. Other categories, they're not salvation issues, but they're just, I suggest, not good wisdom. So, for example, parenting. If you choose not to go God's way of parenting, you're not, it's not a salvation issue. But it's just not good wisdom, and you're going to reap the consequences of that when you're older. But in areas like sexual immorality, if we as Christians profess Jesus and continue to be sexually immoral, then it's a salvation issue. And he makes that clear in Romans chapter 1 and those other passages. So if you know of any areas in your life right now where you've been able to sort of privately continue in those areas, without any of us knowing here in Genesis House or even any other Christian friendships, just want to remind you of Hebrews chapter 4 and plead with you not to take advantage of the grace of God. I plead with you not to take advantage of His grace. He died for you and I to free us from the power of those sins in our lives. Let's move on now and look at the next verses. Look at Jesus' response to Judas after his comments he made towards Mary. In verse 7, he says this, um, Therefore Jesus said, Let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. There's some confusion sometimes about what Jesus actually means about this, and I want to tell you what he's not saying. 
He's not saying this. He was not making a statement against the poor. He wasn't telling the disciples to avoid helping the poor because poverty was an epidemic that was never going to be overcome. Right? He wasn't telling them to avoid helping the poor because poverty was an epidemic that was not going to be overcome. In fact, Deuteronomy 15, verse 11, was an Old Testament command to help the poor within Israel. In Matthew 25, Jesus actually speaks about helping the poor uh, and teaching the disciples all these things. So he was pro-helping the poor. All Jesus was basically saying to these guys was they had to get their priorities straight. There was a priority system, there was a priority order that they had to be aware of. And the reality was the poor were always going to be around. There was going to be ample time, therefore, to help these people because when um, the poverty was an epidemic that was always going to be around. So therefore, there was going to always be ample opportunity to help and take care of them. This could not be said for Jesus. Jesus did have a limited time on earth. In fact, he only had a few days as he made this statement. So the opportunity for the disciples to show him proper love and devotion, like Mary had just done, was running out. So basically, he was telling Judas and the disciples, listen, Mary got it right. Her priorities are straight. I'm only around for a short time, so what she did was right. The poor will be around forever, so you're going to have ample opportunity to take care of them as well. I don't want to take us down too big of a rabbit trail, but a lot of you guys like rabbit trails in this church. I know because I spend a lot of time with you. <laughs> Especially Roger Rabbit. <laughs> uh, but uh, I want to just talk about this comment a little bit more. This, this idea of, for you'll always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. I don't want to focus on the poor part, but Jesus' comment about you will not always have me. And the reason I want to bring this up is that there's some thought in the Christian circles that the presence of Jesus today was just like it was back then with, with Christ. Have you ever heard this in your Christian walk? Well, you know, like, uh, Jesus is here, right here, right now. Bethany, he's right there beside you in that chair. I don't know if you know that, but Jesus is here right now, right here, he's sitting right there, and right beside you in that chair. And it's the same kind of presence that the disciples had. Or when we drive in the truck or our car to work, just so you know, leave a, leave, take your books off the seat because there's, there's a place for Jesus right there in the chair and he can drive with you all the way to work. Not according to Jesus. That's a bunch of spiritual whatever. Baloney. Um, this is not what he's saying here. He's telling the disciples, he's telling the disciples straight up in this passage, listen, you're not always going to have me. My physical presence is going to be gone. I will, you, it's going to look different with me being gone than it is now. I'm squished. No. <laughs> 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 I love that. <laughs> yeah, I'll leave that one in there. That's why you have Kevin editing everything. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I'm trying to get. So yeah, I told you guys like rabbit trails. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, what I'm not trying to do is minimize the power of the Holy Spirit either. We are given the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and we're going to see in John this teaching on the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, he did come to, to do indwell in us, 
But it wasn't the same for us. It's not the same for us having the Holy Spirit as it will be for us to experience Jesus and glory in his physical presence. But it's something we're going to receive in heaven and not um, until then. And I have a conversation that can perfectly illustrate this. And I don't know if God was involved in this for timing or not, but it's kind of interesting. Um, I had a conversation with Dan this week that can perfectly illustrate the fact that Jesus is not here today the same way as he will be in glory. Perfect illustration. It happened on Wednesday. Dan and I, I asked him a spiritual question that we often, we always play devil's advocate with one another. And uh, I asked him a question. And we went back and forth with each other for 30 minutes. We walked up and down the issue. We tried to apply as much scripture as we could wherever we knew it, we knew it best. And we tried to come up with the principles of how to counsel in these situations and how to live out life. At the end of the conversation, I said this to Dan, because we were both unsure about whether we were, like if we would, you know, what we would do if that, was, that situation came across our table, if we had the right biblical response. At the end of the 30 minutes, I said to Dan, wouldn't you love it if we could have been one of the 12 disciples at the Sea of Galilee and asked these questions to Jesus then? And Dan said, yeah, it would have been awesome, eh? We would just walk away with, like, total clarity. I'm like, yeah, it would be awesome. Like, you and I wouldn't be having to go and rehash this conversation again. Because we'd ask Jesus a question, he'd give us an answer. We'd ask him a question, he'd give us an answer. 20 minutes later, okay, here's how we counsel you. Done. Doesn't work that way. That's proof that his presence isn't the same. We have the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the scriptures. But we're still infallible, and we try to wrestle through the best we can with what we have. But again, when we get to glory, we'll get to ask him all the questions that have been burning in our minds, and he'll straighten out every single one of us where we went wrong in our thinking. <laughs> right? We'll still get into glory because he, on his grace, but, but he's going to say, yeah, you were so close in this area, but if you just tweaked it this much, you would have the exactly right response I was looking for. We're like, oh, now that makes sense, Jesus. The disciples got all that conversation and had no doubts about what was true. We don't have that. And so again, when Jesus said, you will always have the poorest view, but you will not always have me, just want you to differentiate between the, what the Holy Spirit presence looks like with Jesus in his now, and what it's going to look like in glory. And there's a different level of intimacy. It definitely is. And I know what people are trying to do when they say Jesus is here now. They're trying to make you draw to the emotional side to give you a tangible experience. Well, that makes sense. I want that. Everybody here wants that, but it's not the same. <coughs> He will get, we do have the spirit to convict, comfort, and direct us. But one day we will experience the physical presence of Christ the way the disciples did back then. Let's look at the final response, which was negative, um, outside of Judas, which was the religious authorities. And their decision towards Jesus was to act in, in hostility to the point of uh, death. Read, uh, we'll read verses uh, 9 to 11 together. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there and, there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. The reasons for their hostility towards Christ? Well, they were threatened because people were putting their faith in him and believing in him. And we spent a couple weeks ago looking at the implications of that. Um, you know, for Jesus to become their king and Messiah meant that these guys would lose political power and, and the influence in Israel. And they didn't want to lose their positions of authority. And so they were afraid of an uprising with Rome. So again, these guys, were all, all they cared about was their political power and influence. And that's why they were threatened against Jesus. But the hatred here has come to new heights. 
Now they want to put Lazarus to death as well. You see that in verse 9. Um, sorry, verse 10. They want to kill Lazarus now because of their hatred towards Jesus. So it's, it's expounding. Um, basically, they want to get rid of the evidence, right? If they get rid of Lazarus, they get rid of the evidence. And so when people come to find Lazarus and Lazarus isn't to be found, then the, the rumor mill starts that, oh, he was never raised in the first place. There's no body to prove that he's there. So they want to kill Lazarus too because that'll stop the amount of people believing in Jesus, which allows them to maintain potentially maintain their power uh, and be less, be less uh, vulnerable. But one more thing of, which is of interest, and uh, again this um, is a cool thing to remember, is Lazarus was probably an embarrassment to these guys' theology. Do you remember what the Sadducees believed with regards to the resurrection compared to the Pharisees? Pharisees did believe in a resurrection. Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. So, uh, Matthew 22, 23. Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. So here's these religious leaders, the, the king jack daddies of all of Israel, teaching there's no resurrection, there's no resurrection, there's no resurrection. And Lazarus is walking around going, hey, here I am, here I am. <laughs> right? How do, you, how do you deal with that theologically when Jesus is just disproved? Your, your, your theological or theological teaching. So I suggest that the, the, the main thing is probably this tied to, to get, maintaining their power, killing him for the sake of getting rid of the evidence. But again, there could be a side tangent here of him uh, being scared of them challenging their theology and making him look stupid. But it is an interesting thought. But we see this type of anger today and hostility towards Jesus and there's nothing new under the sun according to Ecclesiastes. I want to read you from a book. Uh, this, called, this, this book is called Islam and Terrorism. And this guy is named Mark A. Gabriel. He named himself after Mark from the Gospel of Mark and Gabriel the Angel. He took on a North American name to protect himself because he was basically persecuted in Egypt. He was a, he was a professor for uh, Cairo University. His, his subject was Islam. He would teach Islam. He made a comment in class one day about... Uh, how come in some sections of the Quran there's like uh, peaceful teachings and then the other side there's this jihad um, uh, violent teaching and just trying to reconcile it and there was a terror, uh, there was an Islamic uh, jihadist kind of guy in his class that day squealed on him that he was doubting the Quran and then his life was basically a living hell for the next year fleeing for his life attempted murder on numerous occasions but when you read his book God supernaturally protected him all through these through these uh, journeys, and he eventually became a Christian and ran to North America. So he wrote this book to help us as North Americans understand what uh, Muslims and Islamic beliefs are. But I want you to I want to read to you this because um, we have the Sanhedrin practically speaking today in the Islamic uh, movement. Okay, towards and in particular towards Jesus, towards Jesus. I'll read you from, uh, I'll read you, this is his book, um, the, t the chapter is titled Holy War in the Quran. Um, and I'll start on page 33 here. It says, uh, this is from the Quran, uh, Surah 489. It says, those who reject Islam must be killed. If they turn back from Islam, take hold of them and kill them wherever you find them. And then that, so you don't know what category of people that is at this point. <laughs> um, but he's, 
you know, he, he starts to speak in, in more specifically about the Christian people here later on, on page 34 here. It says, In the Quran, Christians and Jews are called the people of the book in reference to the scriptures that they follow. At first, the Quranic revelations encouraged Muslims to live at peace with Christians. The revelations about Jews were never positive. But after Muhammad's move to Medina, the revelations regarding all the people of the book became very hostile. The following verse is considered to be the final revelation from Allah regarding Christians and Jews. Therefore, it is understood to override all other revelations. It says this, And fight against them until there is no more fitna, which is a word for disbelief, um, or worshipping anyone else besides Allah. So fight them in, until there is no more fitna, and the religion will be all for Allah alone. But if they, if they cease worshipping Allah, or cease worshipping all others besides Allah, then certainly Allah is all seer of what they do. And then later on he says, Take not the Jews and the Christians as friends, or protectors or helpers. They are all but Aluia, which is friends, means friends, of each other. And if any amongst you takes them as friends, then surely he is not one of them. So again, the Quran in all of these verses is, is purely out for the Christian people. And it's because of their connection to Jesus Christ. Because if you declare Jesus as Lord, Allah is not Lord. And so anyone who declares Allah as not Lord is to be executed according to these chapters in the Quran. So again, there's nothing new under the sun. Um, uh, the hostility the religious leaders show towards Jesus and anyone connected to him is no different for us today. And if you ever want to study an interesting thing, in Iran's constitution, in their constitution, their national constitution, it's, it's, it's in the constitution to eradicate the Jewish people and Christians from the face of the world. <laughs> That's in their national constitution. So whenever you see Russia signing peace agreements with Iran in the news, take note of that. There's, that's all end time stuff. All right, lesson number one. There's only two. That's just a repeat of everything I've said basically today. But praiseworthy statements and the keeping up of appearances means nothing to God without a heart devoted to him. Without that, it's hypocrisy, right? Judas, take care of the poor. Why don't we take care of the poor? I want to look good in front of you disciples. I want to make sure that I look like the noble one, right? It means nothing to God without a heart devoted to him. Mary's heart, Lazarus' heart, Martha's heart, all fully devoted to him, privately and publicly. And Judas is all about praiseworthy statements on the outside, but he wants to betray him on the inside. The same with us, church. I mean, we have to... We, we know how to speak Christianese in our church. We know how to say, God bless you, I'll pray for you. We know all those, those, those uh, phrases. But what matters to God is how we live. Our hearts have to be devoted to Him, privately and publicly in all situations. This is not scriptural. This is just my experience. Again, it's not, I'm not saying this is the number one reason why people leave churches or reject God. I'm not saying it is. But in my experience, it has been. Every time I go into evangelism and I've spoken to people, virtually every time I deal with an issue with people who've walked away from the church or don't want to know who God is, 
It's because they've known Christians who have been hypocritical in their lives in gross ways. I mean, let's be honest, everyone's hypocritical, even the person that's accusing the Christian of being hypocritical. They're being hypocritical in their statement, but that's besides the point. The point is, is that they've seen gross discrepancies between a life-proclaiming, loving God and how they lived out their lives. It's been a driving force in removing people from the church. It was a number one driving force that removed me from the church. That's what got me out of there as a teenager, was the, was the, the praiseworthy statements and appearances, uh, keeping up of appearances, but then the life that was called totally contrary to it. Totally contrary. It drives people away, it drove me away, and again, I, that's why it's so important for us to, to really think about how we live as Christian people based on what we say and what we do. And I don't know if that's your experience as well as for um, people leaving the church or not, but again, it's something to be very, very aware of as Christians. The second lesson, and pretty uh, straightforward, is that although believers have the presence of the Holy Spirit within them now, it is not to be compared to the presence of Jesus that will be experienced in glory. Again, uh, for you'll always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Again, we have the power of the Holy Spirit to convict and to lead us into truth and things like that, but we're not going to experience Jesus in fullness until we get into heaven with him. And then all of our questions will be answered. We'll know him intimately. We'll have no confusion about his identity in terms of who he is and what he stands for. We'll understand him implicitly. Things that we long for now, but we strive to strive for now, but we still long to have the full revelation now. That won't be so when we experience him in glory.